everybody. Welcome to Improbability. I'm Al Admire. And I'm Pat Finn. And we're here to talk to you about improv and how it can enhance your business life, your personal life, and your overall happiness. In fact, today, the last show in our first series is about happiness and how improv can help make you a happier person. Yeah, like that's great. I, I think that's probably one of the reasons I've kept doing it for whatever, 70 years. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, I always kind of go back to improvisation was, was back when the cavemen were around, but it was really kind of formed as we know it, uh, both comedy and non-comedy. The concept of it was kind of formed in the 40s in Jane Addams' uh, Hull House in Chicago by Viola Spolin, uh, who was teaching kids that didn't know how to, um, uh, well, they spoke different languages, so they couldn't really communicate uh, and so they started slowly by doing just simple games with sounds. Yeah. And that was one thing they had in common. But the overall thing about it was this brought them joy. This this made them happy when they got to be with each other and they got to forget about the problems of, of the war-torn countries that they came from and stuff. So I think that's one of the neatest things I hang my hat on mm-hmm. with improv. And like I said, we do shows and every show is different. And I you might see a great character or a great line, but you'll never see it again. It makes it bittersweet, but it's also, I think it makes it not monotonous. And that's the joy of happiness is just exploring new things. I also think part of it is is when you're, I remember being on stage and being in the zone. You know, when you are working with a group of mm-hmm. other people and you're doing the things we've talked about since episode one, you're actively listening, you're working with the yes and, you're part of a team you're letting go of your fear, you're creating momentum, and this wonderful thing happens that you fall into this zone and you're living in that moment and it is just so joy-filled. And I'm sure you've experienced that time and time again. Yeah. But that doesn't have to be limited to just being on stage with other people. You can take that experience and bring it into your own life. Well, you know, exactly. There's something as simple as, you know, we talk about this a lot, but uh, accepting and elevating somebody's idea. So somebody in the boardroom, somebody in the office, somebody wherever, your coworker, your somebody from the sales team has an idea, okay? You may or may not think that's the greatest idea in town, but all of a sudden, when you do accept the idea and then you try to run with it with that person, that person's naturally, as a human, going to feel good because somebody okayed greenlit and accepted their idea. That's just human nature. Right. Um, and that's kind of right. what it is. Like, oh, I didn't think these guys would go for that idea. And again, it might not work, but you've created that bond. Yeah. So if it doesn't work, you've still created that. But if you say no right off the bat, which is like the opposite of improv, then nothing happens. Well, I remember when you, uh, your troupe, Beer Shark Mice, came to Atlanta and you headlined the uh, Atlanta Improv Festival 2016? Maybe? No, it was later than that. It was 20. 18 maybe? 2018, I think, yeah. Yeah. And I watched that show, and it was really, really magnificent to see. I mean, talk about being in the zone. You guys work so well together. But I'll never forget you coming off stage, and I had bought you a beer. Thanks. Because <laughs> you got to have a beer. Right. And uh, you came off stage, and I handed you a beer. And the first thing you said was, how long did that last? Oh, yeah. Because you had no idea how long you guys had gone on for. Yeah, that's one of the wild things about it is, and I don't know if this is for everyone, but I have no concept of time up there for the most part. And, and when we do shows in most theaters, we make sure that they have a clock up by the, the, the booth that we can see. So if we go up at 9.05, 
we know around 9.45, you know, 9.40, we're starting to look for an out. You know, we're going to try to get yeah. back to the farmer's market or wherever we started. Right. Get back to closing up shop with, you know, right. I just was elected mayor. Um, but yeah, it is funny how, I guess it's a sign that something's good when you don't notice how fast it goes. Well, that's, that's actually called time dilation. And it is a part of, um, in about 15 years ago, I read a book um, written by a guy, get this, named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Wow. And the name of the book is called Flow. Okay. It's about happiness and joy in your life. Now, he wanted to find out what made people happy. So he gave uh, a, a ton of people pagers. And he also gave them, you know, when you go to the hospital and you got the faces, like, how do you feel? Like, it goes from sad face to happy face. There's five. Yeah. Your only yeah. job when your pager went off was to take out your marker and mark how you felt at that time. So everything from sad to very happy. And he did this for about two years. Uh, it ended up with over 30,000 people. So what he found out, and here wow. was the amazing part, that clearly the thing that makes people happy is work. Huh. More people did happy at work. So what he did then is he went back and talked to these people about what about work makes you happy. And it turned out that it wasn't so much about the work, but it was about the opportunity to fall into the zone, which, which he calls flow. So the way he explained it, he said there's a focus that once it becomes intense, leads to a sense of ecstasy, a sense of clarity. You know exactly what you want to do from one moment to the next. You get immediate feedback. So through this research, what he found out, for you to be involved in flow, you have to be totally immersed in a task, like it's the only thing you're focused on. When that happens, you don't notice the passing of time. You also notice that you're not judging yourself. You're so, in, so you're not thinking about what am I doing wrong? How, what, how do people look at me? What, am I, what should I be doing instead of this? You're only focused on that. And through that focus, you achieve the state that he calls flow. So there are three parts to it. It's the, these tasks must be challenging, but not so much that they're impossible. So it's not like, Hey, Pat, fly a plane. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> they have to be rewarding. So it's like, hey, Pat, dig a nice square hole. Not very rewarding, right? Right. And they have to be in-depth, which means that you feel invested in them. You, in, you feel invested in the outcome. So the way that I, I explain it uh, when I've told people about it is, uh, and you're from Chicago, you get this, mm -hmm. um, driving in the snow. Okay. So you got a 20 mile drive home in the snow and it's snowing pretty hard. You're not scared. You know how to drive in the snow, right? Mm -hmm. But you're focused. You're focused. You're picking up landmarks. You're focused on your key, the windshield wipers. You're focused on the progress of the car. Cars coming other ways. And that 20 miles goes by in the blink of an eye. Yeah. Because you're so focused and you're so immersed. You're good driving a car. You know how to drive a car. You know how to drive a car in the snow. You're not afraid that you could go into a flow experience. And I think my argument is that that flow experience that makes you happy, what Csikszentmihalyi says ecstasy, is the basis for improvisation. It makes total sense. I mean, I can completely see how the two would be dovetailed together. Um, and that's a great example because you're, you're exactly right. It's like you, you're uber-focused when it's 
raining hard or the weather's tumultuous or, or it's like you said, snowing. Um, that's, I'd never thought of that. That's really actually a great example. Um, because you are, but, but talk about focus. When you stand on stage at second city, you are focused, right? Yes. I mean, yes. once that show kicks off, you are very focused for sure. Yeah. And, and it's, what's also funny is that we tend to go so fast, um, that you don't really have time to think yeah. more so you have time to react. Right. And the only way you can react is if you listen. Um, so that's kind of, in a way it's freeing because you don't have to sit there and be like, what am I going to say next? Or what should we do? We should be going to the zoo in this scene. Right. You don't have time for that because the person's going to say something and then you react to that. Right. Um, and then that's, that's where you go. You can't go anywhere until you find what you need from the other person. Right. So that's kind of freeing. But uh, beyond the stage, he found, uh, he, he actually went out and did interviews with people who had sent back questionnaires. And there was a guy who worked at the Ford plant in Michigan. And his job was, as cars came down the line, he put the lug nuts on. Didn't even have to put the wheels. The wheels were on. All he had to do was put on five lug nuts. Okay. On one side of the car. There was somebody on the other side of the car. Okay. Now, you would think that that would be a job made for boredom and depression. This guy loved his job. The reason being that he challenged himself every day. He would lay out his tools in different ways. He would get the lug nuts in different positions to try to make them faster. Could I do this better? Can I do it quicker? Can I do it more efficiently? Every day, he challenged himself to get into that flow state with every car that came down the line. And he loved his job and was very happy because of it. That's interesting. There, there was, um, so in, in high school, um, I ended up working uh, in a 7-Up uh, factory. And so I was on the assembly line. And then when you got to be 16, I think uh, you were able to work, it was all Teamsters and Union, but you were able to work on a truck. So I was a helper on a truck, which was an incredibly hard job. Um, but you made good money when I had to pay for college. So it literally directly went to Marquette. But again, to your point, there was a guy, I forget his name in the warehouse and he was like the happiest guy. And what was wild about it was you wouldn't think he'd be the happiest guy because his job would, I forget what they called it, but everyone called him chips. And so that, that was his nickname chips. (laughs) And the reason they called him that because his job was to sit and he, I think he did it for like. 45 minutes and then he'd have 15 minutes off. But he would sit on like a bar stool on the, at the assembly line and probably about three feet to his right and three feet to his left, there was a giant like neon white light and it just, it beamed in his eyes. And then in front of him at about eye level was the conveyor belt with all of the empty 7-Up bottles. Right. And they had to go down the conveyor belt into the machine and then they all had to be washed. Yeah. If there was a chip on them, it would stop the machine and everything would shut down. So his job right. was to be, you know, to make to streamline it, so make sure this thing would never stop. And maybe you know, once or twice a, a day it would stop because inevitably you, it's nobody's that right in like that good at it. But um, yeah, he would just sit there and bottle, 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 bottle. But we go in the break room and he goes, "Hey, how was everybody's weekend?" And he was just the happiest guy. And he's like, "Hey, haven't stopped the machine today yet." And you know, sure enough, he's—I don't think he ever had a day that he didn't. But that was—he aspired to do so. But I was always amazed because, just like your lug nut guy, I just thought he would be the craziest person in the world because he's staring at right. the tops of bottles all day. Right. Well, if you look at—I mean, if you look at the lug nut guy and chips, I mean, they're. they're <laughs> 
they're basically eight characteristics of a flow state. So one is complete concentration on the task. So Chip is focused on those bottles, right? Yeah. Two is clarity of goals and reward. So his clarity of goal is don't stop the machine. Yep. Right. His reward is as you know in the lunchroom. Hey, we didn't stop the machine today. Right. Right. He he did something. Third is transformation of time. He, he if they didn't stop him at the end of forty five minutes, he probably wouldn't know. Agreed. That it was time to stop. The the experience is intrinsically rewarding. He obviously he loves doing it because he was happy all the time. Yeah. It's effortless. Yeah. You know, he doesn't he doesn't have to sit down and get mentally prepared to do this, right? right? Yeah, exactly. It just it just happens. There's a balance between challenge and skills. So he's got good eyesight, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So he can see the chips. I right. mean, he's got the skills needed to achieve the job that he was given. And through those six things, the his actions and awareness are merged so he loses his self-conscious. So he doesn't worry about what if I miss one? Oh my God, was that one that, that went by that I should have stopped? You know, he's just yeah. in the moment watching him go by. And ultimately, number eight is there's a feeling of control over the task. He could reach out and pick up the bottle and right. the line doesn't stop. Yeah, it's cool. That's that's I love how uh, that gentleman kind of did a blueprint for the idea and concept of flow. Yeah. Uh, because it all makes yeah. sense. And it really goes back to kind of the idea of that person's happy because of these things. And similar to improv, yeah, people are happy, A, because it's entertaining and you're discovering things together and it's a little bit scary because it's it's, you don't know yeah. what's going to happen next. But when the end result is, is happiness, that's something people want to be a part of. One thing about happy people, people want to be around them. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like if you go to a party and somebody's like, uh, you know, Debbie Downer or whatever, yes. um, which ironically, this is so name droppy, uh, Rachel Dratch, I've known since I was you know, 21 years old. She's a dear friend, ridiculously talented and smart and funny. Um, she's one of those people, which I, it's funny because it's, she's Debbie Downer, but in real life, she's an incredibly happy person. So when you're at a party, you t- I don't know if you're like me, you tend to gravitate towards people like that. Yeah. You know, people that are like, I don't, I don't get invited to parties. Oh, because I'm people don't want to be around me. That's yeah. I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> The incident that happened at the one party back in 88. <laughs> That's great. Hey, um, I wanted to, I came across a quote and I wanted to, uh, yeah. to, to bring it up. I just thought it was so cool. Uh, I don't know this gentleman, um, but he is a doctor and he is the founder of the National Institute for Play, which is kind of wild. And his name is Dr. Stuart Brown. Again, I don't know him. Uh, He's a um, doctor, I believe, of psychology. Mm -hmm. And here's the quote. I just think it's so cool. The opposite of play is not work. The opposite of play is depression. Yeah. I just think that's so wild. Yeah. And it's true if you think about it. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I mean, you might have said this a long time ago. Remember when you were a kid and a kid in the neighborhood would come to your house or my neighborhood. And I remember just go to the door, and it was like, hi, Mrs. Finn, can Pat play? Yeah. You know what I mean? That was it. Can you play? And you're like, no, I don't want to play today. You know? (laughs) It's like, that was you literally asking if you want to play. Yeah. um, Which is so cool. But I I kind of agree with that, just because it's, depression is when you don't, your life is void of happiness. Well, I know, you know, in my uh, 
in my experience now, being a documentary filmmaker, you know, a big part of making documentaries is doing uh, interviews, right? Yeah. And you and I have talked about this, that um, one thing I learned early is there are three parts to any interview. There's uh, what they want to say, mm-hmm. what they think you want to hear, and the truth. And you always have to go through one and two to get to three. Right. But one of the challenges and one of the great joys in being a filmmaker is leading them on that journey because... I've seen many uh, an interviewer sit down with a list of questions. Yeah. And and that's depression, man. When I've got 20 questions for you, I'm going to ask you those 20 questions and the interview is over. Some of the most amazing things I've gotten for films have been something that I didn't even think of. And it happened in that conversation when I was in a flow state. I was so interested in that person that I forgot that we were being filmed and that I'm gathering this information, that I'm so interested in this conversation. Um, so I, I think that that flow state and that happiness can be experienced anywhere. I do remember being on stage when I was younger doing improv. Yeah. Wow, what a feeling. Yeah, it's hard to explain. It's funny, uh, my wife... We met. I was 18 when we met, so we've been married 32 years. Um, but she's seen me do shows in front of five people, in front of 5,000. Um, and it's funny because people are like, oh, yeah, she doesn't go every time, but she goes to, you know, probably a third of the shows that I've done. And people are like, you go to the show? And she's like, well, it's different every time. Yep. Like, so yep. when there is the flow, if that's to work, the show works because of that. But we get a different, all we care about is the location, you know, drugstore, um, you know, airplane hangar, wherever it is, hot dog shop. It doesn't matter. It's the relationship and listening. And then the flow happens from there. So it's, I mean, I've seen improv shows and people are like, well, you're going to go see a show? I'm like, yeah, because they're different every time. So it's really cool to see the concept of happiness, play and flow all happen. And when that happens, uh, it works and it's a great experience, a great show, great feeling. And that's why Pat and I believe that, you know, using the skills of improv can lead you to a place of happiness in your life, your career, your relationships with other people, and even your, uh, how you feel about yourself, your own mental well-being. I think can be improved. Yeah. I will leave you one challenge. So, uh, you should read flow. The, the, the author's name is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. If you want to have a good time, you should write down how you think Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is spelled. <laughs> And then look it up. Nice. Uh, I guarantee you it won't be close. Right. I don't think he, <laughs> nobody gets it right at Starbucks. I know that. He doesn't even bother going. <laughs> so that's, that's what Pat and I think about happiness. We think that happiness is born of those things that we've talked about now for seven other episodes. The need to actively listen. The need to accept and elevate somebody else's ideas. The need to belong to a cohesive team, the need to create momentum, not in any direction, just a sense of movement, the need to build personal resiliency, that if something bad does happen, you can overcome it and you can move on and it's not the end of your world. And of course, the big one that we always talk about is to follow your fear. Those things that hold you back, let go of them. Because the worst that's gonna happen, the worst things you think that will happen Never will. Agreed. It's it's um, agreed to all of that. We uh, we did a gig in Florida um, a few weeks ago, and the cool thing was, it was for a, a barbecue restaurant uh, that had 150 employees, and mm-hmm. all of those things that Al just mentioned were things that that were brought up, discussed, 
explained and then understood by all the people there. And it's almost kind of what happens after every time we talk to a business. And that's the cool thing about it is you could be in the medical field. You could be in sales. Right. These people, literally, they were cooks. They were uh, um, greeters. They were hostesses. Um, but they came up afterwards, and they were just giddy. He's like, wow, I'm, I'm actually just a cook in one of the restaurants. They have a chain of, I think, 15 restaurants. And um, yeah, he was so excited I bet. to use all of these properties and principles. And it's not that hard. And um, my brother said he ran into him like a week later, and he goes, tell your brother it works. <laughs> like, it's, not, it's not anything crazy. It, it's really simple. But when it works and when it happens, it's pretty darn magical. And that's the thing. Anybody can do it. So yeah. if you want to be happy, embrace improv. There you go. And so this is uh, episode eight, mm-hmm. the final episode of series one of Improvability. We uh, will be back with series two. We have some surprises in store. We have some special guests who will be appearing. Um, yeah. So please tune in. Please keep us in mind. And again, if you would like to speak to us, I'm Al at improv-ability.com. And I am Pat at improv-ability.com. And you can go to improvability.com, look us up, see what we're about. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time on Improvability. Until then, I'm Al Admire. And I'm Chips. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Pat Finn. <laughs> I'm (laughs) fascinated. You guys have a nice day. Thanks for listening. Bye.